Uh, well, good evening, everybody. It's very good to see such a large audience. Uh, I'm Stuart Corbridge. I'm the head of Destin, which is the Development Studies Institute here at the London School of Economics. And it's my pleasure to welcome you tonight to the school's new theatre for an evening of presentations and debate to mark the launch in two days' time, in fact, of the 2008 Trade and Development Report of UNCTAD, the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development a body first established in 1964. Uh, We're delighted that UNCTAD has chosen the LSE once again to launch this report in the UK. It's a signally important report, and it offers, as always, an interesting counterpoint to the annual reports of the World Bank and the IMF. Uh, Later on tonight, I will introduce you to two distinguished colleagues, Dr. Heiner Flasbeck, also of UNCTAD, and Professor Robert Wade, my colleague in Destin at the school, who will both comment on some parts of the report. This year's report, as you can see, has as its title Commodity Prices, Capital Flows, and the Financing of Investment. I'd like to start, though, by inviting Dr. Supachai Panich-Pagdi to summarise the key arguments and findings of the report. Uh, but not before I first introduce him to you. Uh, Dr. Superchai, as I think I can call him, uh, began his four-year term as Secretary General of UNCTAD on the 1st of September 2005, following his appointment by the UN General Assembly. Dr. Panich Bhakti previously served as Director General of the World Trade Organization from September 2002 to August 2005. He's also a former Deputy Prime Minister of Thailand who was entrusted in 1992 with oversight of that country's economic policy making. In that role, he was actively involved in international trade policy and represented Thailand at the signing ceremony in Marrakesh of the Uruguay Uruguay Round Agreement in 1994. Dr. Superchai has also been active particularly was so at that time in shaping various regional agreements and institutions, including APEC, or the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation, ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, and ASEM, the Asia-Europe Meeting. Uh, Students of Development Economics, and there will be some of you out there, I'm sure, in the audience, uh, might also be interested to know that uh, Superchai received his PhD in 1973 from the Netherlands School of Economics on the topic of human resource planning and development. And his supervisor was the the great Jan Tinberger, I believe, who who was, uh, along with Ragnar Frisch, the first person to win the Nobel Memorial Prize in economics in 1969. Not only that, but I think the Secretary General is the ninth such Secretary General of UNCTAD. Uh, The first in line was another great development economist, the Argentine Dr. Raoul Prebisch. Dr. Superchai was appointed a visiting professor at the International Institute for Management Development in Lausanne in Switzerland in 2001, and he's the author or co-author of a number of books on globalization, trade, and the changing role of China, amongst other things. He is a leading authority on the political economy of trade and development, and we're truly delighted, Secretary General, uh, that you're able to be with us here at the LSE tonight to launch the report in the UK. Thank you. 
thank you very much. Uh, let me also, uh, <clears throat> from the Antat side, say how much uh, uh, very delighted uh, we feel to be part of this launch at this highly respectable uh, and respected venue of LSE. I've been here a couple of times in the past, and most of the time I came here as representative of the Thai government. And I remember very well in 1998 or 1999, when there was the uh, emergence of the financial crisis in Asia, I was offered this venue to come and explain things in Asia to the audience, which I, I greatly appreciated. Uh, this time, uh, I represent uh, Antat, and as you know, uh, I'd like to see that Antat works uh, in complementarity with the World Trade Organization and that we don't have to compete because the WTO tends to be doing all the works in negotiations and rules making, and Antat does a lot of work on development and using trade as a powerful means to uh, achieve development. Uh, so what Antat does do is to try to provide uh, a policy analysis backed up uh, for the developing countries to be able to understand the process of development under the globalization uh, environment, uh, under the environment of the new trade rules, under the environment that countries will have to become more competitive, and under the environment that developing countries will have to be capacitated to be enabled to participate in the global trading system in a most beneficial manner. So this is, this is the, uh, uh, the mandate, uh, this is the, uh, the, the task that ANCAT will have to perform. The Trade Development Report uh, is one of our major flagship reports, which most of the time deals with issues uh, on the one hand on the uh, current situation uh, in the global economy. And on the other hand, uh, we would pick up some thematic issues uh, that, that we would deal with in a, uh, in a, in a more, uh, I would say, an analytical way uh, than in other reports. For example, uh, last year we dealt with the uh, issues of, of regionalism uh, when there was a, a strong debate uh, between the sides of multilateralism and regionalism. Uh, we did uh, a report uh, uh, that said a lot about how to achieve regional integration in a way that it will be a building block and not a, a stumbling block against multilateral solutions. This year, uh, apart from touching uh, on the issues of the ongoing global economic conditions, we select uh, some financial issues uh, that we would like to highlight. Also, as part of the effort for the review process that will take place in, uh, in uh, Qatar, in Doha, uh, in November, uh, the review process of the, uh, of the FFD, the Finance for Development, the Monterey meeting. This is the, uh, the, the mid, sort of midterm review for the Finance for Development uh, process that originated from, from Montreal. You remember that financial development uh, meetings that uh, try to uh, forge a consensus for donors countries to achieve ODA, official development assistance of 0.7% of GDP 
and also at the same time to be doing more debt relief, more debt relief for the hippie countries. And the debt relief uh, was supposed uh, to be derived, to be sourced from additional funds and, and not to be part of the ODA. So as, as part of the contribution towards that process of the reviewing of the uh, FFD process, uh, this report is dedicated to uh, some of the issues in the areas of, uh, of, of financial uh, policies. Let me start first uh, with uh, a brief uh, survey of, of what, what we think uh, from the Antat side about the global economic condition at the moment. Uh, as with most of the economists around the world, of course, we are certainly concerned uh, with the, uh, the present uh, conditions of the global economy that uh, seems to be suffering under the confluence of so many different uh, crises at the moment. Uh, crises coming from the uh, financial side, uh, coming from the uh, mortgage side, crisis coming from the commodity side uh, in that the hikes uh, in commodity prices have been quite unprecedented, crisis coming from the side of, of food prices, and not only food prices, but also shortages of food. While people are talking about food prices crisis, uh, I would like to establish the fact that today uh, there are still uh, at least 800 million people who are living under malnourished state. And the 800 million people have been always around and uh, been always on the increase. If we didn't have a crisis uh, of, of food prices this year, we have a crisis anyway which is ongoing with 800 million people who have to be fed and, and to be fed better. We have to deal at the same time also with the, uh, with the uh, rise in the inflation rates, uh, partly because of the rise in in oil prices, partly because of the food prices, and of course partly in, in, in certain parts of the world because of the, uh, of the effect from the labor market. And also we have to cope with a kind of volatility that we are seeing in the exchange markets, that exchange rates around the world are moving back and forth in a way that uh, sometimes uh, you don't see the real directions. And sometimes the way that exchange rates will have to follow uh, certain basic principles. In some countries, exchange rates have not always been following those basic principles. For some countries that have deficits, supposed to be having declining exchange rates, sometimes because of the, of the hikes in interest rate, you see the rise, in the appreciation in exchange rates, for example. And for some time, uh, my colleague, Mr. Flashback, has been repeatedly mentioning the carry trade the carry trade, which is the, uh, the exploitation, the arbitrage between interest rates that has helped to swing exchange rates in a way that have become so unpredictable. We look at this, uh, at the world output uh, growth dropping uh, in a most concerned way, although the, uh, the level that we are predicting for this year for the rate of global growth will be around 3%, roughly a 1% drop from last year. But the shadows from this, uh, all this crisis will, will be long ones. It will cast the shadows over the, the prediction of 2009 as well. Particularly so because the, the, the fallout of the collapses of the U.S. Uh, uh, mortgage market uh, seems to be uh, more profound and more persistent than we have thought. And in the beginning, in the beginning as uh, 
people around the world, economists, were thinking that for a change now, we might have something of a so-called decoupling effect between the, uh, the economies of the uh, uh, advanced world and, and the rest of the world. Uh, it seems to have worked sometime in the beginning with the fact that the immediate impact in the financial areas were not very much uh, apparent. But gradually, as we move along, and this year you are seeing the impact coming through from all sides, from the financial sides, exchange rates movement coming from uh, uh, the sides of the uh, economic downturn that is beginning to hit not only countries in, in Europe, but also countries in, in other parts of the world and even countries in, in Asia uh, feeling uh, the, uh, the pressure uh, of this, of this uh, mortgage crisis. I was told the other day that uh, uh, Korea, uh, for, for example, Korea is uh, uh, looking at the possibility of uh, uh, exchange rate movements in a way that they have not seen uh, before since the time of the financial crisis because it seems that some of the Korean financial institutions have been uh, heavily involved in some of the investment in some of the derivatives uh, coming out of the mortgage uh, loans from, from the United States. So uh, our concern is that uh, we should not be underestimating uh, the economic downturn that is gradually uh, taking hold around the world. Uh, that because the profound financial crisis that hits not only the United States, but also in some of the major advanced economies that are going through some of the housing bubbles, will also add to the impact of economic slowdown. There are some bright spots, though. There are some bright spots, though. Uh, if you look at sub-Saharan Africa, which has all along been suffering, but in the last couple of years, in the last four to five years, sub-Saharan Africa has been doing reasonably well because of the rise in commodity prices and also because of the debt relief and because of the increase in the ODAs. Uh, this year, uh, it is a little bit uh, a surprise to see that uh, of all the various regions of the world, sub-Saharan Africa might achieve a rate of economic growth of around 7%, which is probably unprecedented in the recent his history of, of, of sub-Saharan Africa. The sad fact is that uh, this uh, seemingly favorable economic growth is derived mainly from the increase in the prices of oil. And for some of the major oil exporters in Africa, they are enjoying some of these benefits and high growth. But as you know, and Angklat has been uh, doing this work in the last couple of years, that the, the value, the additional value, the value added coming out of the extractive industry has not really uh, been very conducive to help reduce poverty in Africa. There seems to be way, way small, very uh, tenuous linkage between the extractive industry investment and poverty reduction in Africa. So a lot of profits have been, of course, creamed off by, by the investors and uh, uh, a lot of uh, leakages, uh, corruption involves and things like that. So in spite of this high growth, we have been consistently advising African countries not to waste uh, this windfall gains. Uh, this, is, this is not something that would happen forever, so we advise our African colleagues to try to make use of these rental gains to 
secure some permanent improvement in their productive capacity to invest more in education, infrastructures, and, 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 and uh, manufacturing, industrialization process, so that when the time is gone, when commodity prices begin to decline again, and as you know, in spite of all these highs in the commodity prices, they have not reached the level or come just close to the level that we've seen in the 70s. And uh, as we are aware, commodity prices are very, very volatile. Uh, before you know, they will drop again. And in the last couple of months, you see some of the fluctuations in the commodity prices. As a group, uh, developing countries uh, may not be doing at the moment that badly because an average growth rate that we have predicted for a group of developing countries will be somewhat uh, somewhere around 6%. 6% compared to last year, 7% on average is not too bad. And this is mainly being held up by the uh, rate of growth again in some of the major economies in Asia. And uh, China, again, uh, will prove us wrong. Every time we make predictions about China and, and, and my colleagues in other parts of the world, they're always saying this, that every time you predict there will be a downturn in Chinese economy, Chinese economy uh, keeps surprising us with uh, their resilience. And, and so this year, again, uh, growth rate for the European countries in general, of course, uh, there will be uh, a, down, uh, a downslide, uh, but not as, as, as serious as uh, one might have fear. But because of the persistence of the financial crisis, because of the level of prices of commodities that will stay high, quite on a high level, and uh, in this report, we are saying that compared to the last 20 years, although prices of commodities already start to drop, but they would not drop below the average level of the last 20 years, so it will stay high. So the impact on, on the cost push inflation might, might be still on. And also, uh, uh, one should not be underestimating the impact of the uh, pro prolonged uh, process of uh, economic slowdown uh, that might uh, bite a bit more deeply. We are saying this uh, also because uh, we are seeing uh, the kind of difficulties that countries will have to operate on both sides of the equation. On the one hand, uh, countries, of course, uh, may need to, to use some of the stimulus measures uh, to be able to fight back the kind of slowdown that has been created by, the, by all kinds of crises. They may need to, to, to inject more funds. They may need to reduce interest rates. They may they need to, to be easy on the monetary side. But at the same time, at the same time, there has always been a threat that inflation might take on the galloping nature that we've seen in the 1970s, when we've seen inflation running away in, in a way that it took us a few years before we could, we could bring them back into, into a normal situation. Uh, in this report, uh, we are taking, uh, I would say, some, uh, uh, well, not that innovative, but uh, reasonably innovative stance in a way that we say uh, that uh, countries, particularly in the advanced areas, uh, advanced economy, it doesn't seem to us that the, the cost push, uh, the price increases uh, will spill over into the labor market. We've seen that in several major economies, uh, the trade unions have become less vocal, less assertive in the way they negotiate for the increases in, uh, in, in nominal wages, unlike in the 1970s. Maybe they have learned the, the lesson, maybe they have lost their, 
their power, but there is a less uh, of a pressure on, on, on nominal wage increases. And so uh, at the moment, we do not see that inflation will, will just run away and become galloping, uh, particularly for the advanced economy. So we try to caution that countries should not be overly excessive uh, in the way uh, they, they tackle the, the issues of, of price stability. At the same time, for the uh, uh, developing countries, uh, it seems that in some, in some developing countries, uh, inflations, uh, inflation rates seem to be taking on the, uh, the levels of uh, something like uh, a record level for the last decade in some of the major economies in Asia. So uh, it seems that the, uh, the, the costs uh, in, increase have actually flown over, uh, flow over into, the, into the, the rest of the economy, into the, into the labor market. And so uh, they might have to take some actions. But we have uh, uh, described in this report uh, some of the major economies in Asia wherein we have seen that the past increases in nominal wage rates, that they have not been excessive. For some time, nominal wage rates might have increased beyond the level of, of consumer price increases. But if you add the consideration of the increase in labor productivity in many countries, particularly in Asia, then you would see that the unit labor costs have not been getting out of hand. So there seems to be reasonable control over the unit labor costs in some of the major economies in Asia. But of course, I'm saying this for some countries, not for every country, because in some countries, you are seeing, uh, we are seeing that uh, the, the labor costs might be under pressure to, to move upward. So uh, again, just to summarize, uh, we are saying uh, we, should not, we should not be <coughs> underestimating the seriousness, uh, severity of the economic downturn. And before one decides to go and tackle uh, price stability uh, in terms of macroeconomic policies, one should be quite uh, prudent in not excessively applying the monetary policies because the monetary policies we would like to reserve for the sake of spurring growth at the time of slowing down. <laughs> at the same time, if one will have to fight inflation, maybe one will have to start looking more at the incomes policy to, to block uh, uh, the the. Uh, uh, the, the spill over from the, uh, uh, from the cost push side. Uh, there are four major themes in this report that are linked, uh, uh, financial themes that are linked to uh, what I just said about the economic conditions around the world, and I would go through them because uh, there are some of the new thinking in, in, some, of this, uh, in some of these themes. Now, uh, as we have been always uh, trying to depict in the last couple of years about uh, the situation in the, in the financial system, in the multilateral, in the international financial system. We are even more concerned now because what one is witnessing in this financial system is that there seems to be a, a, a periodic recurrence of, of financial crisis. Roughly about every other year, every few years, we would see some financial crisis uh, breaking out and uh, hitting uh, several economies at the same time, uh, we are seeing that uh, if we leave to the to the markets alone, uh, 
that market efficiency is not going to 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 resolve in the prevention of financial crisis to happen. So we are very skeptical uh, in the way that financial markets tend to be left alone, and left alone in the way that uh, if you compare with the international trade rules, multilateral trade rules, there seems to be quite unparalleled uh, uh, lack of, of, of oversight over financial uh, financial activities. And sometimes, uh, if you look at the mortgage crisis again, because of the different layers of different inventions of the of the financial papers in a way that you cannot really uh, understand where it originates, by whom, what is the value of the paper, what is the quality of it. You tend to buy it because of the, of the face value. And so uh, because of the complexity like that and, and there's no monitoring agencies, no oversight, no multilateral oversight, it seems to be quite dangerous. So uh, the first thing that uh, I would like to, uh, to stress from this report is that we are still quite uh, skeptical about, about this, uh, this market efficiency of the, of the financial system. We think that, of course, uh, there needs to be more prudential regulations, uh, prudential supervisions for the market, but we think that uh, we need to, know, to do more about rules and regulations and codes of conducts and to prevent the kind of unjustified, uh, unjustified policies in uh, in, in determining some prices like exchange rates and interest rates in a way that those, those prices could be used in a distorting manner to, to drive your competitors out of the market and to gain more market shares for yourself. There seems to be some movement, some strange movements in the, in the exchange rates areas as I have alluded to in the beginning and we would like to call for some multilateral actions to have some multilateral oversights over some movements of this financial market. We also believe that... Uh, a large part of price movements in the first two quarters of the year in the commodities area have been caused by excessive speculative moves. You would see that right at the beginning of the, uh, of the uh, mortgage crisis that w- there were huge flows of funds away from the financial markets, from the financial assets into the commodity trades, into the commodity markets. So huge funds uh, coming out, not because of the, uh, the trading houses are just uh, doing their own bits, their normal bits in the, in the commodity markets as usual to have their own uh, uh, speculations which are kept under, under control. But there are new players coming into the market. Those who used to invest only in financial assets will begin to also invest in commodity area. We think that uh, this is one area of the of the uh, financial market that needs to have better oversight uh, to be able to regulate the kind of excessive and destabilizing inflows that has resolved in, in some of the thin markets, commodity market like rice, uh, for example. It's purely, purely because of, of speculative moves in the, in the commodity markets uh, uh, at the global level because uh, I was told by some of the traders in the uh, in the, uh, I think it was Chicago uh, commodity market that uh, in the last 10 or 20 years, there hardly been any, any purchase of, of any papers, futures papers on, on rice at all. And beginning of the year, there were a huge trade in, in, in rice futures uh, in, in the commodity exchange. So these are, these are some of the, the, the things that, uh, that we would like to caution. We would like also countries to avoid the trap of allowing their, their exchange rates to be 
the real exchange rates, I mean, the real exchange rates to be overvalued. Because one of the major lessons that we have learned from the 1997-98 financial crisis in Asia was that one of the major causes of, 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 of the crisis was the overvaluation of the real exchange rates. Second theme uh, that also uh, refers to some of the financial changes and movement uh, that this report, uh, I think, uh, as a first report has, has uh, brought about this issue, which is the, uh, the so-called capital flow paradox. Uh, capital flow paradox. Uh, Sometimes it's called the uphill flows of, of capitals because according to the normal understanding, economic understandings, that capitals uh, will flow from the, 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 the advanced countries with uh, capital rich uh, to the poor countries which are capital scarce because of course, capital will seek uh, higher, higher yields, and of course, for capital scarce economies, the yields on capital would tend to be, to be higher than, than the yields in the, in the capital surplus economies. But <clears throat> in the last couple of years, and particularly since, uh, since the uh, financial crisis in Asia, 1997, 1998, uh, we have uh, observed a turnaround in the current account positions of some of the major major developing economies around the world. Uh, I think in one of these uh, 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 chapters, we mentioned that there are more than, there are about 55, 55 developing countries that have seen drastic imp improvements in their capital, sorry, in their current, cur current accounts that has been improved. And, and, and that's one of the, the, the pages that you, you mentioned. Uh, uh, and here, as a resource of this surplus on the, on the uh, current accounts, we are seeing accumulation of international reserves. So the flows of capital now, instead of coming from the advanced countries into the poor countries, we are seeing the outflows of capitals from the developing countries into more advanced economy. And this is what we call the capital flow uh, paradox. It is all the more intriguing uh, when one observes that there is an outflow from developing countries, and yet at the same time, developing countries which are net capital exporters are also demonstrating <coughs> achieving their high rate of economic growth together with a high margin of uh, propensity of, of investment. To maintain high growth with high investment at the same time that you are just letting capitals flow to a to other economies. This is something which has uh, uh, been quite uh, uh, rare in, in, in the past. This proves uh, an, an area in which Angkat is trying to, uh, uh, to propose uh, uh, as, as linked to what I said from the beginning about economic conditions. In that, out of all this uh, empirical analysis and uh, the reverse flow of funds like this, it proves the fact that uh, <coughs> Developing economies do not always have to be dependent on the imported capitals to supplement the need for their domestic investment. So there is a possibility, a serious possibility to be doing their own domestic mobilization of funds, to be doing their own investment in a way that they are, they are more, uh, more independent in, in doing this and not to be only relying on of course, there would be a certain amount, a certain number of the European countries that still 
would have to be to be mobilizing funds from abroad because, of course, they have nothing to sell, they don't have commodities to export, or just they, they, they cannot mobilize funds. But for, for those countries that are exporting, that, that have to demonstrate the capacity to export capital, it is, it is uh, true that uh, they can do this through their own domestic means. And what we are saying in this report is that, yes, it is recognized in the past few decades that savings correlates with growth. Yes, savings correlate with growth. And all the savings, and household savings, business savings, government savings, we tend to believe that has been demonstrated by some major economies in Asia that some of the most important sources of savings are done by the business sector. The internal financing of the businesses or the so-called retained earnings have been deemed to be one of the most important sources and we would like countries to adopt the kind of macroeconomic policies, financial monetary policies and fiscal policies that would help the business sector to be able to retain more profits and to, and to plow it back into their own investment. It's also true that the banking system has been another source of, uh, of investment funds uh, for, for this country, although not always efficient, although not always efficient, and uh, banking systems in developing countries tend to be of service more for the larger borrowers than the smaller ones, but uh, we do see that nevertheless, nevertheless, uh, bank credits uh, tend to be used more readily for, for business investment uh, than otherwise. And so, uh, in fact, we are saying in this report that uh, this proves that uh, domestic mobilization uh, of, of finance uh, should be should the main aim. So we are saying mobilize finance, don't target only mobilization of savings. Uh, I have a few more minutes, so let me go quickly to the last two points, which uh, might not uh, take so long. The third point, uh, this report is uh, trying to... Uh, come up with, and I think this will be debated further during the Doha <coughs> review meeting of FFD, which is the role of the public sector. Uh, Antat has always been trying to prove the fact that in spite of the changing beliefs in market and in the, in the role of the government, we think that both sides, market mechanism and the, uh, and the, and the states and the governments, they both have roles to play. And for some time, uh, it seems that governments have been a bit sidelined. And it's, it's so, so clear now with this uh, financial perspective in that we are seeing that for some of the projects that are development projects, uh, for example, in economic infrastructure, that you cannot leave this to the decision of the, of the microeconomic uh, uh, elements in the, to, to, to the private sector alone because the, 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 the microeconomic profitability rates might not be substan substantial enough uh, for, uh, to, to, uh, for, for, for decisions to be made by the private sector to, uh, to decide to, to invest. And if governments will have to support and to promote development projects that need huge investment, they would have to drive it forward by either taking part in uh, supplementing with their own uh, financial backup, in joining with the private sector in, in, do co in doing co-financing in some of the major infrastructure, physical infrastructure, infrastructure projects, the PPP, the sort of PPP, the public-private sector partnership thing, and also by allowing public 
publicly owned financial institutions to participate more in, uh, in, in, in lending uh, to some of these development projects that have the profitability rate at the macro level, which is quite, deemed to be quite high, but for the micro, micro level uh, might, be, might be judged to be, to be too small. So here in what we are trying to say is that there is definitely a role for the government to play in trying to intervene to help support financial inflows into certain areas that might not be, 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 be uh, uh, fed with uh, adequate funds flow coming from the private sector. And uh, in spite of the fact that development banks have not always been performing well, development banks have roles to play. And of course, their, their risk-taking exercise will need to be contained and, and to, be, uh, to be well analyzed uh, by using the kind of governance, uh, same thing as the private banks will have to go through. The kind of credit analysis will have to be done and, and there has to be a monitoring of the, uh, the allocations of, of the credits as well. One thing that has been proposed in this report is also the need for countries, central banks in the European countries, to help to promote the so-called long-term debt market, the bond market. Uh, if you look into the statistics in this report, you would see that the long-term debt market, the bond market, seems to have been used mainly by governments. In some countries, in Africa, it's more than 90%. Um, in, in, in Latin America, it might be more than 70-80%. In Asia, it's less so. In Asia, we do see that the private sector has more inroads into the bond markets, and this is an area in which, of course, should be very useful for the mobilizing of finance, and so uh, we are giving our recommendation for central bank to support the uh, creation or to fortify the, the, uh, the bond markets uh, uh, in, in, in the, the open countries. The last point that I would like to make, which is going to be a major point of debate, uh, both in Accra, the aid effectiveness meeting that is going to take place sometime in, I think in October, October, and also in, uh, in, in Qatar, in Doha, is about the, uh, uh, the ODA. Uh, as you know, uh, we've, we've been trying to fight ODA to increase to the level of 0.7% of GDP and things like that. It's coming up uh, uh, a, few, a, few, a, few, a few years ago. But when people began to uh, do more of the debt relief, some of the debt relief actions have eaten into the ODAs. Although from the, from the Monterey meeting, as I have said from the beginning, the pledges of the donor countries from the Monterey meeting were for the, for the debt relief to be additional funding and not to be part of the ODAs. But at the moment, we're seeing that uh, you know, ODAs, they count as part of the definition of ODA, also debt relief. Around about a hundred, a hundred billion dollars ODAs uh, dollars are being uh, uh, given out uh, these days. If you compare to the to the the the, the remittances uh, coming from the international migration of of of, 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 of natural persons, human human resources around the world, they say the the, the, the workers' remittances. He says, you know, it's about twice that much. It's about two hundred billion dollars per year. It's more predictable and twice the size of ODA. If you go by uh, the need for ODAs to be meeting with the MDG target, you know the MDG is the Millennium Development Goals, the, uh, the UN targets for 2015, to half, to half the poverty by 2015, including many other social goals. We are going to reach it only when the, only when, when the ODAs will meet the, uh, the, the target of, of 50 billion per year more than what is being given at the moment. 
there, there are more problems with the ODA at the moment because ODAs are not always linked to the need of the countries. Might be linked to the need of the, the donors' countries, but not. We, we have shown in our analysis here that countries with lower level of income per capita, countries with a low ranking in the Human Resource Development Index of the of the UNDP, are not getting more. There's no correlation between the allocation of of ODAs and the and the need for the country. So we are seeing that a lot of work will need to be done here. And so, uh, again, our proposal in here uh, about aid effectiveness, I think it's a crucial proposal. And I would like uh, to, to, to conclude by saying that uh, although aid effectiveness is, is an international agreement from Paris, and they are going to discuss this in October in, in Accra, in Ghana, I do think that the way we measure effectiveness of aid, we cannot do an aid effectiveness measurement through the administrative means we would have to do development effectiveness measurement of aid. So aid will have to create productive capacity, create jobs, uh, create uh, productive investment in agriculture, economic infrastructure. What we are seeing in the ODA, which is even worse, in the last decade, there was an increase in the proportion that goes into social infrastructure, which which is needed, but it should be supplementary to the major investment into the economic infrastructure. While economic infrastructure ODA has been shrinking all the time and now constitute less than 20%, 20-25% of the ODAs, the social, social aid has been always on the increase. I repeat, it's not that we reject social, social infrastructure investment. I, we reject the imbalance uh, between the social infrastructure and economic infrastructure. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you very much, Mr. It's always very difficult to summarize a a large report like this, which I think a number of members of the audience have got, Uh, and that was a very clear and coherent summary. Uh, What I'm going to do now is to call upon the two discussants to my right to speak for about 10 minutes, maybe a little bit longer, but not much longer, I hope, who will gloss on the report and offer their commentaries on it, uh, and then we'll open up for a question and answer session uh, in the time that's remaining to us. Uh, Our first discussant, two to my right, is Dr. Heiner Flashback who also is a professional economist by training, earning his PhD from the Free University of Berlin. I think the topic was on the theory of the open economy with flexible exchange rates, some continuity there. Heiner's had a very long and distinguished career both in academia and in public service, most notably in the Federal Ministry of Economics in West Germany, in Bonn, in the first half of the 1980s. And after that, in 1998 and 1999, He was the Deputy Finance Minister to Oscar Lafontaine in the German government of Gerhard Schroeder. Heiner's held a visiting fellowship at MIT and in 2005 was appointed to an honorary chair of economics and politics at Hamburg University. He's worked in many parts of the world. He's been an economic advisor to Kazakhstan and he's been working for UNCTAD since 2000. He's currently the director of the division of Globalization and Development Strategies based in Geneva. Uh, Some of you might know that Heiner was here last year to introduce the 2007 report, and he's been heavily involved, I think, in the production of this year's report. So there's no better person to tell us uh, what else is in the report. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Yes, indeed, um, if I would try to put the message of this report in a nutshell, um, well, I think it's possible. It seems to be impossible, but I think it's possible. Let me try. Give me five minutes to try. 
Well, what we, if you look at the neoclassical, the traditional, the mainstream theory, as the Secretary General has pointed out, they look at the whole market system as being driven, so to say, by the voluntary decision of people to save or to consume. That is the main tenet of the traditional mainstream theory. And in this theory, it is obvious that uh, a certain endowment of capital and labor is decisive for you being a developing country or you being a developed country. Developed countries, so to say, by definition, have uh, high uh, endowment of capital and low labor sometimes. Uh, and... Uh, uh, scarce labor, so to say, and uh, um, abundant capital. The other way around in developing countries, they have uh, abundant labor and scarce capital. This is the most fundamental thing in the whole development theory and maybe in the theory of growth and uh, not only in the narrow sense of development, the, 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 the core of the dynamic economic theory that exists at this moment of time. And now come the developing countries as Mr. Superchai has said, producing capital, generating capital, and they not only generating capital for their investment needs. At the beginning when that happened, we people said, oh wow, these are the countries that cannot invest at home anymore. They have no domestic investment. No, it's the other way around. Those countries that are able to export capital, net capital to developed countries, are those countries that have the highest investment ratios and rates, not only ratios, but rates. They are the most dynamic countries. And this is the most fundamental paradox that one can imagine for, as I said, the whole theory of economic growth, maybe. And what is, the, what is, what is behind that? Now, behind it is obviously uh, that under certain conditions, and we identify some of these conditions, mainly macroeconomic conditions, Developing countries can generate capital. They can create capital as well as any developed country. There is no such thing as an endowment with capital that developing countries are dependent on, but they can create capital in the process of development. So it's an endogenous uh, factor and not no longer something given uh, that has to be supplemented. It has to be supplemented in some areas. ODA, as the Secretary General said rightly, there are some countries where the conditions are not given or other institutional constraints or other constraints exist that do not allow this generation of capital. But what we have seen after the Asian crisis, what we have seen after uh, uh, the uh, Latin American crisis is that more and more countries were able to go in that direction, to have high growth rates, to have high investment and to export capital. And the point is the point of difference, so to say, from our view to the traditional view couldn't be greater. The traditional view, so to say, puts a lot of emphasis on capital and the decision about capital, the decision to save or to invest is, as I said, driving the whole, the whole economy only if people uh, decide to save more, uh, uh, an economy can invest more. In our view, it is just the other way around. The decision to invest comes first and saving, so to say, is the outcome. It's the result of the whole problem. We had just the growth report of uh, Michael Spence that was sponsored by the World Bank, came out three months ago or so. And this growth report remains undecided. The growth report says, well, this is the critical question. 
is investment determining saving or saving determining investment? And then they stop. They say, oh, we do not know. Maybe causation goes in both directions. We are a bit bolder than that. We are saying, well, under certain conditions, as I said, macroeconomic conditions mainly, the causation clearly goes from investment to savings. So you invest first, and then in statistics or so, you see later on savings. But the savings are not the driving part of the whole story. Investment is the driving part of the whole story. That is why sometimes the English language is uh, uh, a bit confusing because sometimes uh, saving and investment are seen as the same thing. So I, I try to differentiate. Say investment is investment in fixed capital and it's not mainly investment in speculation. So speculative things and financial assets is mainly, if I talk about investment, I mean investment in fixed, in fixed capital. And this investment fixed capital is financed by money, by money and nothing else, or by retain profits if the process is already uh, running. And to be financed by money, you need reasonable monetary conditions. And here comes what the financial crisis at the end of the 90s and the beginning of the, this century has done in many countries. It has dramatically changed the monetary conditions. Maybe for the first time, many countries outside Asia, even outside Asia, in Asia anyway, there was the monetary conditions were most of the time very good. But even outside Asia, for the first time, the monetary conditions have dramatically changed. Namely, they have depreciated their exchange rates so that they improved their competitiveness. So that would say there's hope for the UK too. They have depreciated and have used the opportunity of depreciation. That is very important. They have used the opportunity of depreciation to export more and to use this export to invest more. Whether this hope exists for the UK, I don't know. But, uh, and the other thing is they were able, because they were independent of the international capital market for the first time, for a long time then, they were able to produce reasonable internal, affordable credit conditions, which is affordable, reasonable interest rates. And, again, what you can identify is that mostly those countries were successful, again, mainly Asia, where the financial markets were to a certain amount or to a large amount controlled or strongly regulated by government. That is the additional condition that you even find. Whereas in many other areas of the world, for example in Africa, what nobody would believe, look at the chart at page 111, if you have the report, what nobody would believe in Africa, despite all the liberalization of the financial market and the, the achievements in getting Western banks in and to do uh, uh, their job there, they have not achieved what is absolutely necessary, namely they have not achieved affordable interest rates for, uh, on, in, in the banking system. The lending rates in most of the regions of the world are still extremely high, with the exception of the developed countries and Asia. And that shows, and in Asia, if you look at it, and we have looked very carefully at these things, Indeed, the governments have played an enormous important role to get, so to say, uh, or to, to, to simulate competition where there was no competition. Whereas in many countries, we have just been in Ghana, the Amta 12 conference was in Ghana, 
If you look at Ghana, Ghana has a privatized financial market. There are seven private banks are there, but four of them have overlapping ownership, so they're not independent anymore. And the, and the lending rates in Ghana are the highest, uh, uh, among the highest in the world, with an inflation rate of 10%. They published when we were there in April for the first time that the lending rates, the private lending rates in Ghana are between 24 and 36%. So if you have such lending rates, it's prohibitive to investment. You will never get investment. You will never get sustainable development. The only thing you will get, you will get for a time, if you have high revenues from commodity prices, you will get a bit uh, a, a, a good economy for some time, but it will uh, fade out as soon as the good times and, and on the commodity side are over. So this is very important, and we have done a lot of, uh, I, I conclude in a minute, Mr. Chairman, uh, we have done a lot of empirical, uh, tried to produce a lot of empirical evidence that shows that the paradox goes even further, that the classical mainstream theory says that the decision about capital is important uh, and the goods market, so to say, are driven by the capital markets. As I said, most of the time it's the other way around, but maybe the goods market are driving uh, the capital market, but the paradox goes further a bit Namely, the goods market and the, the pathological movement of the goods market are very often driven by the capital market again, but not by the, so to say, the voluntary decision, the right decision of people to save or to invest, but by speculation. And that applies, as Mr. Supercha has said, it applies to commodity prices where we see now with the drop in oil prices, for example, how important speculation was. It was not all a fundamental factor. It applies to, well, anyway, housing markets, everybody knows. It applies to currency markets, which are extremely important for uh, developing countries. And uh, we said already, and there are a number of developing countries that will be the next to be in trouble, namely, uh, mainly in Eastern Europe, uh, where we have overvaluation, dramatic overvaluation. Last year, we mentioned here the famous ca case of Iceland, <laughs> a very small, uh, unimportant country, but that was flooded by, uh, by international capital. <laughs> It was flooded, it's true. <laughs> not, in the, not by water, but by <laughs> capital. It was flooded by Japanese housewives' capital to produce high returns that the country never could pay. And so uh, what we have, we have a distorted capital market that is producing all these distortions for the goods market. Uh, and uh, uh, it is the important and the most important uh, uh, task for governments uh, to get these to, to absorb these kind of shocks, to fight these kind of shocks that are coming uh, from highly volatile capital markets, and to get what we could call, to get their macroeconomic prices right. You know, the Washington Consensus said you have to get your prices right, but they meant just flexibilize all the markets, get all the micro prices right. They never talked about the macro prices. We're saying the other way around, uh, it may be okay to get your, your prices right, your micro prices right, but the most important thing is to get your macro prices right. And only if you get your macro prices right, namely uh, interest rate, exchange rate, and wages, mainly, uh, roughly, then you have a chance to create capital and to be independent uh, of the international markets and to uh, uh, strive even under the actual conditions of globalization. Thank you very much. Central paradox.
jobs in development economics. Uh, I hope off the record that you've not been sort of paid by Gordon Brands, the ex-Deputy uh, Finance Minister of Germany, to further drive down the pound here with these, <laughs> these remarks about the weakness of the British economy. Shock horror. It could be in the newspapers tomorrow. Um, our, our next discussant is uh, my friend and colleague Robert Wade, who's Professor of Political Economy and Development in Destin at the LSE. Robert's perhaps best known academically for his book, much acclaimed book from 1990, Governing the Market, Economic Theory and the Role of Government in East Asian Industrialization. Robert's also the winner of this year's Leontiev Prize for Advancing the Frontiers of Economic Thought, and he'll be collecting it in person at Tufts University in Boston, I think in a couple of months' time, Robert. Uh, Robert's published very widely in... Robert's published very widely on finance and development issues, not just in the academic journals. I mean, your recognition shows the fact that he's a regular contributor, for example, to the FT, the Financial Times, where he's crossed swords on several occasions with Martin Wolf and others. Uh, Robin was an ex- uh, Robert was an excellent discussant of last year's report, and I've told him to be just as incisive tonight. Robert. Thank you very much. Um, let me begin far back from UNCTAD and the Trade and Development Report 2008, by looking at the big picture of world development over the past 40 to 50 years, one measure of world development is the extent to which developing countries have uh, grown fast enough to reduce the relative gap between their average incomes and that of the North. And what I want to do now is to show very quickly three charts. Now, if... um, there is catch-up growth, if there has been catch-up growth of developing countries relative to the north, you would expect that the trend lines for regions, developing country regions, income relative to that of the north would be going up. And especially, you would expect the trend to be going up, the gap reducing, after round about 1980, which is the onset of the great liberalization, the great uh, hegemony of the Washington Consensus agenda of liberalize markets, deregulate markets, privatize markets. Uh, Around about 1980, that's when this agenda began to really kick in and the World Bank, the IMF, the multilateral development banks began to push this line hard and since Uh, 25 years or so, this agenda has been the dominant policy agenda in much of the developing world, and so that if this agenda has been successful, you would expect these lines to be going up. What do you find? You find this is 1950, this is 2001, this is about 1980. I'm sorry, these lines are not very clear. What you find is that these lines are going down Um, If I had shown Eastern Europe, it would more or less track the Latin American decline. This is the south, the average of all. You see it sort of flattened out around about 1990, but notice it remains at a very low level. This is in purchasing power parity dollars, by the way, not market exchange rates, around about 15% of that of the north. Africa down, 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 accelerating after 1980. This is the Asia line beginning to go up from a very low level, 10% after about 1980. But this Asia line actually includes China 
but China is also shown separately in order to illustrate the point that much of the increase in Asia is driven by China, but China beginning very low and ending up at about the average of the South, namely 15% average income in purchasing power parity dollar terms relative to that of the North. This is not exactly glowing testimony to the, Washington, the success of the Washington Consensus Agenda. Most regions of the developing world have been declining. They have not been catching up with Asia as the big exception and within Asia the great driver has been China. This uh, second chart shows uh, much the same thing, that is, but in a more aggregate fashion. That is, these trend lines show the average income of the whole of the third world. Um, this, is the, this thin line is the whole of the third world relative to that, again, of the north, and the trend goes from 1960 to 2008. Now, this is in market exchange rates. So this is incomes converted uh, with, lag market, uh, with uh, yeah, lag market exchange rates. I'll come to the purchasing power parity trend in a minute. But you see that if you take this as meaningful, incomes converted at market exchange rates, then this also is not a story of catch-up growth. This is 1980, and you can see that both these trend lines, including China and excluding China, go down after 1980, flatten out, and now this is the um, good news that Dr. Superchai highlighted. That is, uh, in the, just the last few years, this trend line has gone up, but gone up uh, to a point still well below the point reached in, the, in this earlier period. So this is hardly good news. One swallow does not a spring make. Um, and I think it's very optimistic to simply continue this line on and on uh, to a catch-up point. Um, I should just explain this graph and the next one comes from a paper by Alan Freeman which will appear shortly in the Third World Quarterly. This is the trend, same thing, the uh, Third World with and without China using purchasing power parity conversion figures. And basically you can see that one of these trends li trend lines is more or less consistent with the catch-up story, the globalization catch-up story. That is the story that in the 1980s we had the globalization consensus or the Washington consensus or the neoliberal consensus, I use these terms interchangeably, kicking in countries around the world liberalizing, deregulating, privatizing, and lo and behold, average incomes in the third world did begin to catch up even though they, uh, even by 2007, they reached only 18% in purchasing power parity terms. However, there's a very important caveat, and you see that by looking at this line, which is that if you take China out, one country out, then there is no catch-up story. There is a story of a relative um, income stagnation of developing countries minus China compared to the North, and then again at this end, this blip driven by the commodity price boom. So 
This, I think, is rather bad news for the Washington consensus, for the globalization consensus, the neoliberal consensus. And that brings me to UNTAD and the trade and development reports. The trade and development reports are important because they provide almost the only source of serious, heterodox, and economic arguments about development strategy from within the multilateral organizations. Um, arguments, that is, which challenge central parts of the Washington Consensus. And this, of course, makes UNTAD rather unpopular in certain circles of the North because by the same token that the Washington Consensus agenda has not worked to generate catch-up growth in developing countries, it has worked very well in terms of protecting the North's dominant position in the world economy, and that's very good news for the North, though nobody in the North will say that. To illustrate what I mean by UNTAD being unpopular, a Financial Times journalist, whom I will not name, said to me, to, said to me recently, quote, the world would lose nothing if UNTAD disappeared. <laughs> this journalist is, of course, a very strong defender of the World Bank and the IMF and other organizations that advance the Washington Consensus. One of the distinctive features of UNTAD's approach is the emphasis at the macroeconomic level on the production structure of developing countries and the process of diversification and upgrading of production. And at the microeconomic level, the emphasis on firms, on firms' profits and firms' reinvestment as drivers of production, diversification and upgrading. And the approach, this approach then looks at the role of the state in domains like trade policy in financial policy, in industrial policy, in incomes policy, and so on, the role of the state in terms of how these policy domains affect firms, firm profits, and firm reinvestments, firm technological capacity. That's the central lens that UNTAD approach the approaches the development cha challenge from. Well, if we compare this approach with that of the World Bank, we look, for example, at the World Bank's World Development Reports. We see that the World Development Reports have only rarely looked at these same kind of things, have only rarely looked at the structure of production of an economy in terms of input-output relations, only rarely gone down to the level of firms and their investment decisions. The current WDR on agriculture is the exception rather than the rule because of its emphasis on a specific productive sector. Dr. Superchai mentioned that in the whole aid business, there has been such a switch of emphasis to the social sectors and away from the economic sectors. And this simply um, uh, underlines the point that I'm making. It is UNCTAD and maybe uh, um, one or two other international organizations which are emphasizing production the World Bank and other multilateral development banks have largely moved away from it, and I think that's a very serious um, neglect. The strange thing is that in the post-war decades, production structure, diversification, upgrading of production, 
These things were at the very center of development economics. For example, Leontiev of the Leontiev Prize in the 1950s and 60s um, was one of the pioneers of the analysis of, in, of um, production structure through his input-output analysis for which he got the Nobel Prize in 1971. Hollis Chenery, who was vice president of economics at the World Bank uh, for many years under Robert McNamara, he also continued in the same tradition of looking at production structure, though in a rather mechanical way, Hollis was a petroleum engineer by training and he applied the principles of petroleum engineering to the economy. And even Walt Rostow, with his stages of economic growth, which I would not hold up as a model for anything, nevertheless, he was concerned with economic structure and the process of industrialization. He was much more concerned with these things than the Washington consensus of the past 25 years has been. So the Washington consensus that UNCTAD is challenging is at the end of a long movement of thought away from the analysis of economic structure and towards the idea that development is driven by, quote, well-functioning markets. And um, I think I'm going to end my remarks at that point, cutting them well short, um, except you know, I'll just make one more point. In terms of what Antad says about the role of the public sector, the role of government in the development process, because its analysis of the blockages of development ends up by giving a more positive role than in the Washington consensus to things like um, sectoral industrial policies, to things like development banks, to things like even incomes policy, incomes policy as an adjunct to monetary policy so that interest rates can be kept relatively low and not interest rates not relied upon as the prime instruments for fighting inflation. Rather, because of the emphasis that they give to firms' profits and firms' reinvestment of profits, they want interest rates to be kept relatively low and inflation to be fought partly through things like incomes policies. Well, you can see just from the words that I've been using how toxic this agenda is to the Washington consensus, things like industrial policies, financial repression, incomes policies, and uh, capital controls even. All these things press just the wrong buttons. But the TDR, this one in particular, does lay out serious theoretical and empirical grounds for thinking that these things should be part of the policy instruments of, the, of many developing country governments. But at the same time, you can see that this line of argument does not fit well with the conventional left-right distinction, where the right wants more market and the left wants more state. UNCTAD is very clear that well-functioning private property-based markets are central to the development project and it celebrates, especially celebrates, firms' profits as key to reinvestment. And its central concern is exactly how to increase firms' profits and then get the profits channeled back into um, productive activities. This, of course, is quite different to some varieties, at least, of left 
thinking which is hostile to private enterprise and especially to profits. Thank you. I'm hoping that uh, our LSE volunteers and colleagues won't mind if we perhaps run a little bit late today to about, say, uh, ten past eight. I'm going to declare that that clock is fast in any case. Uh, If anybody does need to leave, if they could leave fairly quietly from the middle door or the back door. I'm going to take questions in in groups of three. If you could please ask a question and not give a commentary and make your question as short as possible. That will allow everybody to, hopefully, a a large number of people to, to have their say. Gentleman at the back, and then I'll come to this gentleman. The microphone will come to you. Thank you. Very much. Thank you. Very kind. Uh, the, the world is growing, and the GDP of the developing countries is making remarkable uh, headlines. Uh, but have you looked into the? Have you, have, as I'm taught, have you looked into the structure of this of GDP ownership? Who owns this GDP? Um, probably that might explain the question raised by Professor Wade. Thank you. Thank you. Admirable. Uh, gentleman down. So another mic, or we've just got one? Yeah, a, I'll take you third. The gentleman just there, uh, just two rows in front of you. Yeah, with his hand out. Um, on, on the last speaker, are you therefore saying that uh, these, or certain developing countries, um, uh, because, of their, uh, because of their wealth, shall we say, um, uh, that are able now to uh, thumb their noses at people like the, um, the World Bank um, when they want to simply uh, break the rules and keep interest rates down when the World Bank uh, and IMF might feel that uh, they should be putting them up. Thank you. Gentleman uh, from In the past, governments have used the monetary policy to meet their own means. Do you not feel the reason several governments have not used the monetary system satisfactorily or not at all is due to fear of political or economical unwisdom, which has proven to discredit the currency, um, the current currency, such as the time of Louis XVIII, France. Excellent. I um, don't know if you want to each provide an answer, but maybe starting with the Secretary General. I'm not so sure whether I really uh, under, understood all, all the questions, but uh, let, let, let me try. Uh, the, the, the first gentleman asking about the uh, composition of GDP, I, th- I think uh, you were trying to say that uh, uh, some, some parts or some s- substantial parts might have been created by, by, by foreign investment and, and therefore the, the, the returns will go uh, to foreign investors. This is of course uh, true in particularly in in some countries in Asia uh, that have mobilized a lot of, of foreign direct investments. But th- therefore, uh, what, what we are now trying to say from Antat Sai is that uh, you, you, can, you can mobilize your own financing needs. Uh, you, you can really, uh, particularly in, in this day and age when uh, the uh, current account surpluses are, are a long-term phenomenon uh, and the accumulation of, of reserves are so high, that uh, uh, there is not really a need to, uh, uh, to mobilize uh, FDI for some countries. I would like to say that in some cases, in, in some cases, it has also been necessary for for the FDIs uh, to be mobilized because 
with with the FDIs, uh, there would be the uh, transfer of technology. Uh, there will be the uh, the management know-how and also the networking, the so-called international network of production that could help the countries uh, to embark themselves upon upon new investment. So I wouldn't totally reject the FDIs, but I would agree with you that of course, uh, when countries depend so much on on the importation of capitals, then the composition of the GDP would be due to a lot of external pressure. Uh, if I may ask on exactly uh, that point in a different uh, way. Uh, the important component of FDI is technology if it is, if it is incorporated in FDI. Not, uh, so not uh, exchange of assets is not uh, real FDI, but if FDI is greenfield FDI, so that really new plants are erected and things like that, then uh, it should have a technological component that is important. You see that in China. China is importing that component of technology, but at the same time is not dependent on capital overall is an exporter of capital, a big exporter of capital to the rest of the world. So that is not a contradiction, but that can go hand in hand. You have uh, uh, this import of technology, but nevertheless you're free uh, to set your own monetary conditions. You're not depending on foreign capital at large, and mainly you're not dependent and you're not uh, 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 playing ball of this speculative short-term capital. That is very important to differentiate. We should not talk just about capital flows or things like that, but we should say really what we mean, namely short-term speculative capital that is coming in and using uh, your high interest rates for depositing money at the banks is of no use for developing countries, it's of no use at all. It's distorting the prices and is making things more difficult, but it's of no use. If you have FDI, that may be uh, totally different and so far. But I would like to mention something else. What is very important, even if the ownership uh, is to a, 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 a large part, a certain part, in the hands of foreigners. What is then important to make this process of uh, uh, development successful is the participation of the people, the participation of the workers in the result of this investment, which means participation of workers in terms of higher wages uh, and wages rising in line with productivity. What not, is not happening in many uh, developing countries because the power situation is such that they... Uh, are not able to, to push through higher wages that are rising in line with productivity. But that is exactly what is needed, not only for social purposes there too, but for economic purposes, namely to make the uh, society uh, successful in economic terms because only that delivers you, so to say, a sustainable source of further growth. That is what makes China and other countries now rather resilient that they have uh, their own consumption, they have domestic consumption that is based on wage growth and that uh, is driving the economy despite uh, the external shocks. I think this is a very important uh, thing. Uh, on, on, you see, the, the bankers' organizations, let me call it like that, are thinking like bankers. Uh, the World Bank, the IMF are bankers' organizations. They think like bankers. That is, well, that is an accepted view in this world. We should dis dispute it. We should discuss it. Uh, we should take it as one, one certain view, but we should not take it as the view in the world. That is important, that we have a competition of ideas uh, on these things and that we do not, do not just accept uh, uh, this, this one-sided and, and this one view, this theoretical point of view. This is not the only uh, uh, theory uh, that is around it. That is what we wanted to challenge exactly with that report. We show that the, the decisions about saving and investment are not driven uh, by this uh, 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 fiction of a neoclassical 
household under perfect information about the last next 50 years uh, that uh, decides now to smooth consumption or not uh, because uh, interest rates go up and down. That's not the world. The world is that we have huge shocks uh, every day on uh, economic policymakers and on economic agents. And so they are living in a world of uncertainty. And what the governments have to do is to produce a bit more certainty uh, to reduce the uncertainty and absorb some of these shocks. The last question, I was not quite sure what the young man, you talked about France. Did you mean France in the 80s or what? I'm talking about how basically I'll give the example of France in the past in the 80s. In the 80s. Yeah, you mean, you mean this, this uh, famous Mitterrand example where they tried to go it alone uh, and, and tried to uh, do different things than other countries have done. That did not work. It did not work, but for specific reasons it did not work. Why did it not work? Well, the main reason was that France was rushing into a huge current account deficit immediately when it started to kind this kind of isolation policy from Germany. You know, I'm German, so I know very well <laughs> this. Uh, and, and it was a reasonable attempt, but it was uh, not well reflected how to do it. And uh, France was, uh, was losing its competitiveness dramatically after the turn in, in economic policy, which is not an example that I would recommend, but which does not prove the point that something like that is not possible. First of all, if all in Europe we would go for a reasonable policy, we could do it anyway. And if countries avoid that they run into competitive problems in addition to their expansionary policy, then they can avoid this negative uh, result uh, too. Thank you. Thank you. Robert, did you want to add anything? Or? No. no. Okay. <laughs> uh, gentleman there. Yeah, I'd like some clarification on the question of speculation. So is it being claimed, for example, the fact that we've had high volatility in foreign exchange markets, commodity markets, and so on, which we clearly have. Does that a priori prove that speculation, not only that speculation exists, which clearly it does, but it's driving the markets? I mean, you could equally argue that if you have a tight su supply-demand imbalance, then that could cause the same phenomenon. You know, if you have rising demand and not enough supply, that could cause the same volatility. Or people also pointed to the fact that when you have commodities which don't have futures markets and there isn't scope for speculation, you see a similar phenomenon. <laughs> so if, does speculation really have the central role you're attributing to it? Okay. Uh, I saw a couple more people down this side. A gentleman at the front with a red shirt. I can try and <laughs> No, it's just there. It's right there. <laughs> Thank you very much. Very quickly, you made a point about, uh, in simple terms, the percentage that the South per capita was, have, or income was falling against what the North was having. And you made the interesting point about the relatively new phenomenon of having growth in the economy or in the countries that were also capital exporters. And I was interested in your comments on the possible link between the two, where we, in a way, have a situation where the South is producing more than it is consuming, exporting capital which then ends up in a way, you, you did show that how it's been financed, the consumption in the North. So we're possibly coming to a flipping point in a few years' time where basically we're sitting in this country and have to pay the bill back to the countries that made the thing. So long question, do you see any link? Do you see a possible shift in the trend of, of uh, the percentage fall? Thank you. Okay, lastly, gentlemen, three rows behind with a blue shirt. 
try and catch other people who have one more Great. round. Uh, thank you. Uh, this is very interesting, um, but I, I do detect a mixed message coming from the speakers and the report. Uh, it, because on the one hand, there is something of a plea, though it was the last thing he mentioned, for more ODA. But yet the other two speakers seem to be saying that ODA has got really not much to do with it and that the development is largely driven by quality of institutions and the nature of the society of the countries concerned. Now, if I, if I interpret this right, wouldn't it help to play down the appeal for more ODA money? Thank you. Yeah. Who wants to kick off? Let me try this. I, I, I don't think we differ so much on uh, whether ODA would, would, would serve or not serve. I mean, uh, of course, uh, there were other uh, uh, elements that explain why ODA have not been put to good use in, in some countries with the lack of governance and uh, even lack of agricultural development policies, then uh, ODA could not be put to good use. What I'm trying to say is that apart from those countries uh, that have been demonstrated by this uh, table on page 135, uh, there, there are countries that, uh, that also see, uh, witness the, the deterioration of the current account uh, balance. Fifty-five countries uh, have witnessed improvement over, over, over a period of uh, more than a decade, but there are 48 countries that have seen deterioration in their current account uh, uh, performance. So there will be countries that would need to depend on, on the inflow of, of ODAs. But what we are now trying to project is that for those countries that have this reversal of the, uh, of the balance of payment, they have demonstrated the possibility that finance can be mobilized at home and you don't have to be dependent all the time on foreign uh, import of funds. Whereas for those countries that have seen a different kind of reversal or haven't actually experienced reversal, they will still be in need of ODAs. But what we are now trying to say is that the ODAs may need to be, the effectiveness of ODA may need to be based or measured by the performance in terms of development achievements, not in terms of administration, harmonization between the donor's requirements and the recipient requirements and things like that that they are trying to do now at the moment. We are calling also for a very explicit increase in the ODA to be allocated to economic infrastructure because we, we want to tackle the roots of the poverty issues. You can always give handouts so that people can get humanitarian aids all the time to alleviate some of the, some of the ills of, of, of poverty. But you don't, you don't eradicate poverty by just giving social humanitarian aids. You have to do more capacity building, productive capacity, and this is what we are trying to say that in the past decade, it has been so that the social infrastructure has been deemed to be the most important thing, so they put all the money in there. Yeah, uh, may, let me say, well, on the speculation uh, question, indeed, that is a much debated issue. Uh, there's a much debated issue, the uh, let me say like that, um, the good normal economist would say uh, that speculation is always only a temporary phenomenon uh, and uh, that it's soon over and the market comes back to equilibrium. Unfortunately, this reminds me of this famous saying from Keynes that, uh, you know, in the long run we are all dead, 
but but the but but it has a, a serious meaning here. I mean, if food prices are driven up by nine nine for nine months only or for six months, people die. People may die or be uh, not uh, nourished anymore uh, in a reasonable way, so that they become sick and things like that. This is all in the transition period, so to say, of the equilibrium model. Uh, how can we deal with that? That is the first very important question that is not answered by the traditional uh, economics. The second one is that we do not deny that there may be other reasons for prices to rise to a certain extent. Oil prices were clearly driven by real demand in Asia and elsewhere. But this has not driven the oil price in two months from 100 to 145 and has not driven it back from 145 to 108 where we are today. Not at all. This additional movement, so to say, that clearly came from speculative forces and that is proved by the, by the very simple case that we see that it moves back despite many fundamental factors being absolutely unchanged. The demand in Asia has not changed at all in the last three months. But oil is dropping like a stone. And you will see uh, most probably that it further drops. But and the it, in the West, sorry, the in the West is falling. It what? The in the West is falling. It's falling, but not to such an extent that it could explain a 50% fall in the price. Not, not to such an extent in a recession that is not even there. It is just uh, appearing somewhere uh, on the horizon. Uh, and additionally, we have clear evidence, and I hope we can come out with that very soon, uh, that this additional money that went into the futures market has clearly uh, driven prices up and down. There is, we have now, uh, if you look at some of the stock exchanges, you find that the index funds uh, have invested in the stock exchanges in the futures, and that clearly influences the, the day traders, the spot traders as well, because these people depend on the to get the product in three months' time. And if they see the futures price go up, then they behave in a way that they either uh, keep back their supplies so that prices go further up, or they uh, demand immediately and, uh, in, in increase prices because they fear that prices might go further. So there is clearly a strong connection between futures price and spot price, and that cannot be denied. Uh, every normal person would react like that, and... Uh, uh, clearly, the, the, the traditional speculation, so to say, or the people carrying out the normal hedging on these markets behave more speculative, uh, speculative if there is so much additional demand uh, and money flowing into the futures market. And that there is a huge amount of money flowing into the futures market is absolutely clear, and it's mainly uh, since the end of the subprime crisis. On the... Um, Last question, your question, uh, are the developing countries then financing the consumption in the United States? Uh, this is, again, a too simple story that uh, they are just financing consumption in the United States. First of all, what they do, they're trying to preserve their markets. They try to keep their markets. And uh, that is a very reasonable approach because this uh, uh, market dynamics that came from the United States in the past uh, has been very important to uh, ignite and to fuel uh, their own dynamics. China is, is the classical example. And so far, uh, again, this, this look backwards, in, if, you, if you have, so to say, the statistics and you see that there was a surplus and there was a deficit, and then to interpret it in terms of behavior of agents, that is very dangerous, and that is exactly the opposite of the approach that we have taken. Robert? 
Well, just one <coughs> uh, quick point. Uh, there's no doubt that U.S. consumption has been um, kept up, has grown much faster than otherwise because of capital inflows from the rest of the world. And we are now in an, in an absurd, absurd situation when you stand back and think that the world is calling upon the American consumers, already consuming the most of any set of uh, people in the world to consume even more, to boost their consumption so they hyper-consume still more in order to save the rest of the world. Um, we haven't mentioned climate change, but um, the good part of this current crisis is that it might, might, I underline might, help to slow down consumption growth in the north um, for a while, and that would surely be good in terms of reducing emissions. I know that there are a very large number of people that want to ask questions, but I'm also mindful that uh, the Secretary General has already launched the report elsewhere today, and he has a further commitment uh, this evening. So I think we'll have to draw the proceedings to a conclusion. Uh, I hope we can all thank in the usual way uh, Super Chai and our two discussants for what I think is a very sparkling discussion. <laughs>